Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. In just a short time, and I'm going to make it as short as possible, we're going to come again to worship God. And as we do so, we're, we're going to come around a table of remembrance, a table uh, that speaks of that salvation which is found um, in no one else but Jesus Christ. There is no name that you can call on for salvation. There is no name that you can call on for freedom from sin. There is no name that you can call on for newness of life and fullness of life now and forevermore. There is no name but the name of Jesus. And there are many, many good names in this world. Many good people in this world. Many good ideas. Many good concepts. But there is one name that is Lord of all. There's one name that offers hope. There's one name by which we are saved, Jesus Christ. And we want to know him. You might think that going to Exodus chapter 20 is a funny place in the Bible to know Jesus. I wonder this evening if we might find Jesus there just the same. See, Jesus is writ large through all the pages of your Bible. Did you know that? That Jesus was there in the beginning. Didn't we just sing that? One with God most high. This is very true. And Jesus is woven even through the opening of the law of God, which is what these Ten Commandments are, God's moral code, the foundation, in fact, for most of the laws and codes in the world ever since. I don't know whether you've found these Ten Commandments and our discussion of them to be interesting, enlightening, Enabling, perhaps, within your Christian walk. Can I help at all? Is there something? No, okay. I don't know whether you found it to be enlightening or enabling, but if I were to ask you, do you love the law? And no, I did not say love the Lord, because that's dead easy. We can all say yes to that. Do you love the law? That's a kind of a trickier one. So I'm not sure it's very easy and very... Uh, natural to love rules and regulations is it does anybody like you know those kinds of things do you like the kind of rules and regulations that perhaps trammel you down certain ways and I don't know do you find them restricting do you love law see I love it when other people obey the rules of the road you know when they are kind of going around a roundabout and they indicate so that I know what's happening I love that but when I have to do it I well it's not so important all of a sudden, is it? You know, I love it when, you know, if I'm playing a game of Monopoly, it's not been, it's, I haven't played it for a while. I love it if other people abide by the rules. But I also kind of love it when they need a bathroom break because Monopoly's a really long game. And uh, in those uh, bathroom breaks, I love my own rules, which indicate that should someone take a bathroom break, you are entitled to put another hotel on your property. These are my rules. That's a confession, that is. <laughs> it feels good to... Yeah, I know, I'm a cheat. Um, I'm just confessing to my sister even as we speak. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I like rules that restrict me. I'm kind of all right with rules that restrict other people. Uh, rules, it's a tricky thing. The law is a tricky thing. Most of us don't get on very well with it. I think, um, was it Monica from Friends who said that rules make games more fun? Uh, she seemed to be on board with rules, but most of us, it's just not so easy. 
And while we might see the benefit of rules and regulations, we might see the benefit of, you know, having some sort of code for living, at least for all those other crazy people out there, if not for us, to love the law. That's a bit of a leap. And when the law starts to get a bit complex and a bit full and a bit difficult, you know, think about, I don't know, something like tax codes. Does anyone understand tax codes? No, they're pretty confusing things, aren't they? How about, um, what else is, is complicated? I don't know, uh, the rules of cricket. Anybody understand the rules of cricket? No, not really, no. H- how people vote in Eurovision, that's pretty complex as well. I don't really get how that works. Um, when the rules start to get a bit complicated, then well, we don't just not love it, we kind of just switch off from it. Now, I heard a story that kind of gives an insight into how the law can be challenging and complex sometimes. The law can be demanding, but the law also can open up life. The story goes a little like this, that uh, a gentleman has um, committed a crime. It's a serious crime, but uh, nothing too horrific, I guess, but pretty serious, and the consequences are going to be pretty great. And, of course, he goes through the normal legal procedure, and uh, the court case arises, and you know, evidence is given back and forth, but he's found guilty. Not much of a surprise. You know, he committed the crime. It was fairly obvious so. And there aren't many extenuating circumstances, really. There's not much that he could say in his favour. And so the judge, hearing from the jury that this man has been found guilty, he knows what he has to do. And in this instance, the gentleman is due to be handed an enormous financial penalty. There is a fine to be paid. But it becomes apparent pretty quickly that when this uh, fine is paid or this financial penalty is met, not only uh, will it punish this gentleman for his behavior, but it's actually going to ruin his life. And not just his life, but his family's life as well. And all the people around him, that's not to excuse what he's done, absolutely not. He's guilty. The fine must be paid. The judge knows the sentence that the law demands of him. And so he hands down the sentence. And of course the gentleman receiving this sentence, standing in the dock, is destroyed. He knows that this is it. Life is more or less over. There's no hope for him. There's no hope for his family. We heard a little bit about consequences generations to generation this morning. And he knows that what he has done is going to, well, it's going to wreak havoc. Who knows how far down the line. But then something really remarkable happened in this instance. In that the judge, hearing that the man was guilty, handing down the sentence according to the law, didn't leave it there. Rather, when all was done and dusted and everything was finished and dealt with, the judge got down from his high and elevated place. Have you been in a courtroom? There they sit very grandly, don't they? Getting down from where he was, he came to the gentleman whose life had been destroyed by the consequences of his own wrong actions. And he writes out a check for the sum of the fine and pays the price that the man could not. And all of a sudden, it starts to make some sense. 
And the law starts to look like something that not only prevents wrongdoing, not only corrects the individual, but the law potentially can be a means for grace. The law potentially, knowing that it is utterly and far beyond us, just as it's far beyond me not to cheat at Monopoly. The law being incredibly, massively, far, far beyond us, as we've seen over recent weeks, becomes a place that challenges us, becomes a place that shows us that meeting this standard is far beyond us, but it becomes a place in the hands of a a gracious lawgiver, in the hands of a loving judge. It becomes the means for total and wholesale transformation. If you were standing in the dark, if you were under this enormous penalty, this vast burden that was ready to destroy your life, and you knew that you'd merited this judgment, this sentence, you knew that you were wrong, you knew that you had failed to uphold the standards of the law. In fact, you'd rebelled against it, you'd broken it, you'd flouted the law, you were disgraceful. You knew that the sentence was just. And then the judge had come to you and paid your penalty. How would you feel? How would it change your perspective? Would you say, oh, thank goodness, he knows the law's nonsense after all? No, not at all. You would know your guilt, but you would be immeasurably thankful for grace, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it transform your life? Wouldn't it transform your relationship with the judge? I think you'd, uh, you'd do anything for them, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it transform your relationship with the law as well? Wouldn't it be the case that by means of the judge's grace in your life, you would seek to live out the law after all? Not because you can somehow earn what he has done. He's already done it. But because the judge has done everything necessary to set you free, your heart's response is to honor his ways. This evening we come to the, uh, the culmination of our time in the Ten Commandments. You know we've been working our way backwards in, like uh, orbiting around and around and closer and closer and closer, coming to the core of it all, the, the blazing, beating heart of everything, even God himself. And what we're discovering as we've been swirling towards the glory of God is that God hasn't done away with his law through Jesus coming to save us. It's not like he said, oh, do you know what? I'll just turn a blind eye. I know you've messed up. I know there's horrific brokenness in this world. I know there's rebellion and sin and all of the horrors of people are choosing their own ways from the smallest infraction to the, to the, uh, the greatest horrors of humanity. I know that this all has happened, but maybe I'll just pretend it hasn't. No, no, no. That's not what God has done. Rather... God has satisfied the requirements of his law in a way that we never could. In a way that we never could through Jesus Christ. And he's removed the terror of our failure. He's removed the penalty of the law marked against our name. He's changed us so wonderfully that we now want to live in a way which honors God's best, even his law. There's a man 
John Newton. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, that spoke about his wretchedness and his salvation. And he, he wrote another hymn, and he said this. He said, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Saviour's name. He has hushed the Lord's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. We heard a bit about that this morning. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When we trust in Christ, our fortress, justice smiles and asks no more. How good. How good. The, the thunder of the Lord. It's every right to smash us into oblivion has been hushed by the grace of God, not done away with, but attended to rightly by Jesus Christ. This is why these commandments matter. These commandments matter in showing us our need of God and in facilitating the way in which God would come into our world. And they matter in that they help us with our aspiration to honour God in the way that he has made us to to flourish in the way that God has made us to. And they matter because they're written by somebody who matters. Not just Moses. Moses was a good guy. But it was God who spoke these commandments. It was God who said, these people need to know. They need to know. They need to know my ways. They need to know me. God cares about you. And yet time and again, people try to do away with the law of God just as they fail to understand or appreciate the grace of God. Time and again, we modern superhumans, that's what we think we are, think we know better than those backward ancients. We think nowadays we're so much wiser than the people of the Bible. Why should we bother with these Ten Commandments? There's an English philosopher, a guy called A.C. Grayling, and in 2011 he wrote... Um, a book entitled The Good Book, brackets, a secular Bible. He's not a Christian. In fact, he's an atheist. And he thinks there's a lot of nice things in the Bible. If only we could do away with God. Um, it'd be so much better. And so he wrote this book. And within this good book, he decided, do you know what? I'm going to have a crack at a new set of Ten Commandments. Because those original ones, they do bang on about God quite a lot. Uh, so if we could have a new set. And these are the ten that he came up with. He decided, commandment number one, love well. Commandment number two, seek the good in all things. I can see a little flaw in that. There are some things that just don't have any good in them. Uh, you know, uh, number three, harm no others. Four, think for yourself. I'm not sure that's always wise either. I don't know. It's, uh, number five, take responsibility. Number six, respect nature. Number seven, do your utmost. Number eight, be informed. I'm not sure quite how that qualifies as a commandment, but there you go. Number nine, be kind. That's pretty good. Number 10, be courageous. They're pretty nice thoughts, aren't they? They're good sentiments. I don't think we would disagree with any of them necessarily. You know, I might think they don't go far enough, but they seem pretty nice. So, of course, knowing that this happened, 2011, these were written down. If I were to ask you, you've all been living by these new Ten Commandments religiously ever since, haven't you? Of course you've not. Did you even know they existed? 
No, no, I didn't really until I was studying for this either. It's a nice idea, but commandments divorced from a commander, it doesn't seem to make much sense. The guy who wrote them, he had a a bit of a sense of that even within himself. An atheist though he may be, a wise man though he may be, he wrote down these Ten Commandments, and you know, he got to the end of them and he thought, oh, I don't know whether I'm really got it right or not. And so he said, he said, actually, I might add an 11th commandment, which is at least sincerely try. Well, that rather removes the force of them, doesn't it? They're no longer commandments. They just have a good go-ments or try-ments or whatever they might be. All of a sudden, they, they, there's no power. Why? What's the point? It's not surprising that these vague suggestions, however well-meant, they can't hope to carry the weight or the force of God's commandments. If God were to leave the salvation and the sustenance and the hope and the future of the whole world to a at least sincerely try, then we wouldn't get very far, would we? If that was Jesus' intervention into this world, you know, God speaking to his son and saying, Do you know, these people are desperately in need. Everything is going pretty badly and it's only going to get worse. Would you go and, and sort this out, Jesus? And if Jesus were to turn to his father and say, well, I will at least sincerely try. I don't think we would have a great deal of confidence, would we? We need Jesus to do a little more than sincerely try. We need the success of the cross the success of an empty tomb. The truth is that these commandments have substance. They're only worth paying attention to because of the one who spoke them, because of God himself. And this is where we get to a really big problem. Just this week, there was a YouGov poll, a survey done in the UK. And these Ten Commandments were presented to British people, just like you and me. And uh, they were asked... Does this commandment have any relevance in modern society? So one by one, they went through them and uh, they asked people, does it still count today? Has it got any value? Has it got any relevance? Well, uh, as you would imagine, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not steal. Most people thought, well, we should still stick to those. Um, 93% of people said they were definitely still relevant, which leaves 7% of people that we should be really worried about because they're going to stab you in your back and nick off with your mobile phone. Um, They don't think anything about that. But most people think not murdering and not stealing is a good thing. Tick. Uh, This is excellent news. Um, Not bearing false witness, telling lies about others. That came third, actually. 87% of all Brits say it's still important to live by that. Don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies about people. Um, Close to three quarters, 73% of the population, say that not committing adultery is still a good life principle. And honouring thy father and mother is still an important rule to follow for 69% of all Britons. 69% of the young people here this evening. Uh, I don't know what what that means about the other uh, 31%. I'll let the parents decide which ones are, uh, you know, falling into which camp. I don't know. Uh, 69% still say it's important. And... The last commandment that holds majority support in the UK today 
is the instruction that people not covet the possessions of others. Six in ten people think as a whole that this is still a good rule to live by. It's starting to get a bit more tricky, isn't it, really? Because coveting is just a whole lot of fun, I think, for a lot of people. So that's quite hard to agree with that. Most people agree that commandments regarding each other, they've still got a lot of sense in them. Yet support for the commandments as to how we live towards God plummets. Fewer than a third of British people say that people should not worship idols. And most people no longer mind taking the Lord's name in vain. Only 23% of the population say that you shouldn't use God's name as a curse. Only one in five Britons still believe that the Christian God's monopoly on worship is relevant. And fewer than one in five Britons say keeping Sundays holy is still an important principle to live by. We seem to think nowadays that treating each other well, mostly, is still important. But relating rightly to God isn't important at all. Disconnect seems to have come. There's a bit of wisdom, a bit of good advice, seems sensible. But the God stuff, nah, I'm not sure about that. Exodus chapter 20 begins with these words. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Who is this God who gives us these commandments? Who is this one without whom there's no source, no root to them, and without whom there is no purpose or destination to them either? This God that most people nowadays seem to think they can do without, even though they quite like some of the things that he said. Who is this God? I am the Lord your God. What is a God? What is this God? And not so far back in your Bibles, you find that it it is God who is there in the beginning. There is nothing else. There's nothing to steal, nothing to murder, nothing to covet. Nothing at all. And into the void, God speaks order into chaos. He says, let there be light. God is the one who is. God is the one who is able to create and cause things to come into being. This is the one who is speaking these commandments. God, the one who creates and the one who sustains. I am the Lord your God. He is the Lord, the one who reveals himself. See, God didn't stay far off. Rather, getting intimately involved in his creation, he introduces himself to his people. He is the I am, the transcendent, glorious God who's beyond knowing, but he's also the Lord. The one who comes close and introduces himself to people and says, you are to know me, you are to worship me, you are to know the benefits and the the beauty of life with me. This is the God who speaks these commandments. He is God. He is the Lord. He is your God. Your God. 
the sovereign one, the king, the one who rules humanity and history, the one who wants to be in total control of your life and its circumstances, the one who wants to order your past rightly and set you up for the future so that you might honor him all the days of your life. This is the Lord your God. No small being, no small wonder. This is God who speaks and what does he do as well as what does he say he is the one here who brought his people out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery God is a redeemer he redeems he sees those in slavery and he's not content with this and he says I will buy their freedom no matter the cost Jesus Christ was willing to pay the price for you and I to be bought out of slavery to sin. We cannot fulfill these commandments with our own rightness. We fail and we falter and we find ourselves entirely enslaved to the, 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 the feeling and the desire to sin. But Jesus sets us free. This is the God who speaks these commandments. If we divorce God from our lives, as people want to divorce some commandments from others, and they want to divorce perhaps some nice manageable good advice from an unmanageable God, if we do this, then we can't possibly hope to be saved. Now don't misunderstand me, it isn't the law that saves you itself. It isn't that if you can just try a little bit harder, then you'll be fine with God. Then God will give you a free pass, perhaps. I think it's a tragedy, perhaps an unsurprising one, that we seek to live by a little bit of good advice, but we don't want the giver of, not good advice, but the giver of the means of life itself. What do you think the gospel is? What do you think the gospel is? Good news. What do you think that the good news is? Do you think it's simply that God loves you? That's a part of it. You might hear something like that. Hear a gospel said that God loves you and you think, well, that's a wonderful good news because I love me too. It's amazing that somebody else has come on board with my way of seeing the world. God loves me. I, I am lovable. And then what else do we add to the gospel? Well, we say God has a plan for your life to which, of course, our natural response is I have plans for my life as well. I think my life is worth investing in. Amazing that God's come on board with this as well. God loves me and he has plans for my life. I love me and I have plans for my life. Amazing that God wants to simply facilitate the way that I see things and live my life. Of course, we have no problem inviting that kind of a God into our lives. A God who loves me like I love me and who has plans that really chime perfectly with the plans that I have. Invite him into my heart and then carry on loving myself and living out my plans with my nice new buddy God secretly put somewhere in my heart. It's a brilliant idea, isn't it? What an incredible gospel. Why would we then need to change? We've got some good advice. Don't kill people, don't steal stuff. Good advice. We've got a nice little pocket God who loves us just like we love ourselves and wants us to live our lives just the way we want to live them. Good advice, pocket God. Why change? 
You know, we run the risk of inoculating people with a half gospel, a half-hearted gospel. We run the risk of slicing straight down the middle of these commandments also and, in, and giving people the good advice without the glory of God himself. What's the point? What's the point? Christian gospel isn't good advice. Christian gospel is the desperate, total and wholesale need of every single person who ever has been or ever will be. The absolute need of a saviour to rescue us. Not from what is happening to us, but rescue us from who we are ourselves without God. We were sinners. We were desperately in need. We were within the, uh, the, 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 the very uh, torments, the very possibility of the fires of hell. This was the judgment that awaited us for the things that we had done, for the people that we had become. And the gospel says, not that God loves you just the way you love yourself, and that he wants you to carry on living just the way you've been living. The gospel says, that is the way of death. And you don't need just good advice. You need to know that there is death in your best. But there is life in accepting Jesus Christ. The gospel says to you, God loves you, but not the way that you are. God loves you for the way that he has made you and for the way that he can remake you through the precious blood of Jesus. God has plans for your life, but they will cause you to change. Because God is not in the business of simply giving you a little bit of good advice and then allowing you to separate that away from a glorious, fiery, holy God and say, that's enough. Our society might want to do so, and I completely understand why. Because good advice is manageable, and God is not. Christians, uh, do we do exactly the same? Do we live lives of Christian good advice? Somehow divorced from the glory of God. The Bible says that for our sake, God made Jesus, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus summed up the commandments and he said, greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and the next is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. I would put it to you this evening that Jesus has loved you with all of his heart and his mind and his soul and his strength. Jesus has loved you with everything that he has and everything that he is. And I would ask you this evening, how are you responding? How are you responding to his love? Does the commandments call you to love him with everything you've got in return? Do you know we find ourselves in the dock and we know we didn't make the standard. In fact, we know, as the Bible makes plain to us, that the charge sheet against our name is beyond paying for. We're ruined. We're desperate and destitute. There is no hope. And yet, the one who has righteously judged us has come down to our level, come down to this world, and he has paid the price for you and for me. He has loved you with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And he asks you to stop living some kind of Christian good advice and to start loving him in return. Stop divorcing those nice commandments that you can figure out and think make a lot of sense from the commandments that require you to surrender your life to God. They make no sense without the author. And life makes no sense without the author of life. Would those who are serving communion perhaps come and join us and those who are ministering in worship? This is what we've been seeing through the Ten Commandments, these words that we find in Deuteronomy 30. And God, for there is no other, he says to us this evening, See, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. You can't do this without God. You can't. They couldn't do it then. We can't do it now. God lays before us life and good, death and evil. He makes it simple because we're simple people. And he calls us into the way of life and good. The only way to walk in that way, to know life, to know good, the only way is through Jesus Christ it's not about good advice and good works it's not about saying oh I'll accept all the nice bits of Christianity that make some sense to me but that Jesus fella I don't know about him it's not about saying that I'm just going to try and be good but God there's life or death before us there's good or evil before us And God calls us to the better way, the way of hope, the way of life, the way of good. The only way to walk in it is through Jesus Christ. And he says to us tonight, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's bread and there's wine this evening. They speak to us of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. See, it was costly for him to make this way for us to come to the Father. It was costly, more costly than that judge writing a check. No, it cost him his life. He who knew no sin became sin and was punished, wounded, crushed upon a cruel cross for you and for me. And this evening, I know many of us, most of us perhaps, maybe all of us, would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I have given my life to God. I've surrendered myself wholly and completely to him and his ways because I know that my best is not good enough, but he is more than enough. If that's you this evening, the bread will come to you. Take it, break off a portion, eat it, and thank Jesus that he has made a way for you to be right with God.
Thank Jesus that you don't live by your own best efforts to fulfill some good advice, but you live by the life of Christ. And the cup will come to you. Take it. There's no need to delay. Simply drink and thank God that he has made a way for you, even through the shedding of his blood, that you should be washed clean and made new in him. It's not your own best efforts. It's God's free gift. And as the bread and the wine come, if you have any doubt in your mind as to whether you're living by your best efforts or by God's free gift, then can I urge you this evening, allow that doubt to prompt you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ to say to Jesus Christ this evening I don't want there to be any doubt in my life or in my way Lord Jesus I surrender to you wholly and completely Lord Jesus I do not want to come to church and hear good advice rather Lord Jesus Christ I surrender my life to you I surrender my life to you This evening, don't go through motions. Don't eat and drink simply because you've always eaten and drink. Say, Jesus Christ, I need you. God, I need you. Nothing else will do. Keep me, Lord God, from the trap of living religious practice or living good advice. Keep me from the trap of of simply saying that I'll just accept part of this whole Christianity thing. Lord God, that we would honor you. That we would be devoted to you. That we would surrender our whole lives to you. For you have loved us with everything you have. That we would love you the same.